Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. I'm your host, Ben Ryman. So today's a fun one. Uh, they're all fun for me. I like doing podcasts. I get a kick out of, you know, just talking to, you know, sometimes my heroes or just people that are doing cool research and cool areas. So I always have fun having conversations. But this one in particular, I've been really excited about. Um, uh, and it's going to be a, a two-parter. So we're going we're gonna to do this interview today. And then uh, uh, if folks are listening, they'll be able to continue on and there'll be a second interview as part of as part of it so folks will be able to uh, collect their CEUs and we're going to be talking today all about cats and I just love cats I've always had cats I'm a cat rescuer we've got lots of cats in the house and uh and this uh, and and I I came upon this paper called the functional analysis and treatment of aggression exhibited by cats towards human during petting and I thought it was a joke um and uh but it it's not and it's so awesome so today we're going to be talking with uh, Dr. Jennifer Fritz. The second part of the episode, we'll be talking to uh, Dr. Stephen Payne. And they both happened to do um, or publish a study on functional analysis of aggression of cats um, uh, at the same time. And, uh, you know, that, that just seems like a crazy coincidence. So to, we're going to do a nice big cat episode today. So I'm just super pumped to talk about aggressive cats. So welcome to the show, Jen. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for the invitation. You bet. So before we kind of get into the kitty cats, um, let's talk about, uh, I just love saying cats over and over again. I could just talk about them all day long. Let's, let's get a little bit of your origin story. Just kind of tell us kind of how you got into, you know, the, the, uh, the, AB, the applied behavior analysis field, uh, you know, kind of how that all started for you. You know what, I know you don't generally do cat research, so it may be just a little bit about kind of what your work is like and that sort of thing and kind of how you got to that. And then we'll, jump in and, and find out more about this cat lab you have. Sure. Yeah. The cat lab is new to me, but problem behavior is not. Uh, I went to the University of Florida for my bachelor's degree in studies uh, and got involved in Dr. Awada's lab. Uh, Greg Hanley was my instructor for the experimental analysis of behavior class. And Claudia Dozier came in one day and was looking for research assistants. And so I immediately jumped on that opportunity. And from there, I just really got hooked into the problem behavior area. After graduating, I went up to the Kennedy Krieger Institute and worked with mm. a bunch of really great people up there. Willie DeLeon, Sung Wu Kong, Louis Segopian. And uh, after working there for almost two years, I went back to UF and did my doctoral studies. Uh, but since then, I've been at the University of Houston Clear Lake, and most of my work focuses on the assessment and treatment of behavior disorders, uh, especially in individuals with autism, but not always. And I love cats, too. So uh, a lot of people do are doing work with dogs, and that's great, but, you know, cats need some love, too. And I had a cat, um, too, actually. But one in particular would have been a great fit for this study. <laughs> um, after she passed, I decided because I wasn't allowed to get any more cats due to allergies in the house, uh, mm. I met with some students and we started talking about developing a cat lab. And so this paper that we published is our very first study that came out of the cat lab. We're really excited about it because 
well, it worked and all the cats were adopted. So that was really fun. So, yeah. So what, what, what was sort of the reasoning for starting a cat lab? Like how does someone just start doing cat research? Yeah. Well, I met up with some folks for the, with the homeless orphan pets endeavor in Houston. It's a rescue Mm. group. um, And Lisa Gilchrist is my contact there. I actually adopted a dog through that organization, Mm. but they primarily work with cats. And we just got to talking about my work and my research. And I said, you know, I'm really interested in working with you all and try to help with the cats and, you know, we'll do what we can. And this just happened to be the first study that we got going. And it, it turned out to be a really great um, opportunity and showed that we could actually do this with the cats. Right on. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, I like right away sort of the, 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 the social validity piece of the, the goal here is to get these, get these cats adopted. I, uh, I know I've done volunteering in kind of rescue shelters and those sorts of things. And often there's many, 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 you know, cats with, you know, traumatic histories and lots of aggression. And I often wonder, you know, how, how those cats ever even get adopted. And so, you know, I think this is amazing. We, we had a cat, Oscar, who uh, I'll, I'll share a little bit on, on the show notes for folks, maybe a couple of photos or whatever, but Oscar <laughs> went through, Oscar went through five uh, foster homes before he came to us or five homes before he came to us, he kept getting returned back to the pound uh, because he was so aggressive and he was doomed. He was set for euthanasia sort of thing. And we went in and met him and, and for whatever reason that day, he didn't hurt us. And so we took him home, but we discovered quite quickly that why he got returned so many times, five times a day, he was jump and we but we adopted it i think it was in the summer and so five times a day he would jump onto our 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 legless pairs of shorts and 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 grab on sort of to the inside of our back of our knee and just slide down oh. um, um yeah i can imagine the pain and the blood um and it was awful um and uh eventually we decided that we had to make him an outdoor cat just to see and that dropped the aggression down to just one time a day um, so that made a big difference, but, um, it was still that one time a day of aggression. So we actually had to come up with the 15 rules of Oscar, which if I can find them, I'll share them. I'll share those with the show notes too. And the 15 rules worked magically. You could protect things like, you know, don't have your arm hanging over the chair, those sorts of things, but also things like, you know, don't talk on the phone in front of Oscar, you know, don't have, don't laugh in front of Oscar. You know, always include him in those conversations. He was a very diverted attention kind of guy, and and uh, what he would he would get angry if you you know if he wasn't the center at all at, at all times. And so, yeah, he was he was lucky to survive, um, and he he lived a lot of years until the the, the raccoons kind of kind of kind of finally got to him, and then eventually a coyote. But um, overall, we 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 know that we put a lot of years lot more years into that cat's life than others. So I just really appreciate that, you know, that there's, that there's folks out there using the science for, um, you know, uh, for, for this great reason. And, and I, and you, you see in the abstract that, you know, all, all three cats were adopted after the treatment. So I think that's just, just wonderful. So what, uh, obviously you studied with all of the, the functional analysis greats. And so you had, had lots of experience in that area. What uh, what did this study look like? 
Yeah, so in a lot of ways, it was very similar to typical functional analyses, just like cats. And we focused in on the context of petting because we knew that these cats were up for adoption. They'd be going to adoption events. And mm. of course, the first thing a potential adopter is going to do is try to pet the cat. And if a cat won't tolerate that, it's going to be a little bit hard to get them adopted. Um, mm -hmm. So I actually reached out to one of my colleagues, Rochelle Yanklevitz. She has been teaching courses on animal behavior and she's run a, a foster program herself. So she has mm. a ton of experience working with cats. And so we brought her on as our resident expert to consult on the project and mm. watch all our videos uh, and make sure that we were doing things uh, appropriately. Uh, but we, you know, in each condition, we would pet the cat or just have our hand available. And depending on the contingencies we were looking at, you know, the consequence was either if aggression occurred, we pet the cat in the attention condition, or if we were petting the cat and aggression occurred, we stopped petting the cat in the escape mm. condition. And so all of the cats that we worked with showed escape maintained aggression. Mm. And we think that probably is because of the setting that we were working with. Uh, it mm. sounds like maybe we needed Oscar in our study to see if you know, <laughs> that attention maintained aggression. <laughs> uh, but we didn't see any of that in the study. I, you know, my cat um, that passed recently, Mila, she actually was like Oscar. If you were petting her and stopped, she would aggress. And yep. um, I thought, you know, maybe it was to keep petting, but we never saw that with any of these cats. And Perhaps that was a function of being in a strange setting and we were relatively new people to the cats. So, Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, there's been a lot of talk of late, which has been great. Uh, there's uh, the, even Dr. Greg Hanley published an article recently himself on, on sort of trauma-informed uh, ABA. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, if, if there's any creature, you know, well, dogs as well, but dogs and cats go through you know, just, I, I, I would imagine immense amount of trauma, especially these rescue cats. Um, yeah. You know, they're often found on the street. They're often, you know, starving. They're often, uh, you know, um, they're, you know, people out there do some really horrible things, which, you know, I'm sure many will be familiar with, um, uh, you know, and with dogs in particular, you know, getting chained up sort of 24 hours a day and then having all these kinds of kinds of issues. And so, you know, having a really, uh, you know, a, uh, I, I don't know that it, if it was your intention, but just a lot of the stuff you did in here really seemed to be kind of, you know, trauma informed for cats. Um, you know, I, I think I think just uh, you know uh, tr trying to sort of you know desensitize them to the to the petting, but also you know including some of those. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, I think it was more in, in some of the, the naturalistic setting sort of piece, but, you know, including some cat toys and the laser pointer, the power of the laser pointer in those graphs <laughs> is amazing uh, and, and not surprising. It, it's, but it's also not surprising that it, that it's escape maintain aggression. I mean, I think there's, if anyone's ever been a cat owner, um, you, there's sort of that, you sort of even if you don't have an aggressive cat there's sort of that rule of petting you know you can pet three times but not two but not four <laughs> um if you pet three times it's okay if you pet two you get grabbed if you pet four you get grabbed you know and then with these aggressive cats i imagine it it it, it it's quite a bit worse so mm -hmm. it's not surprising that um 
um, that that uh, that the escape function was sort of the you know the key piece there. Um, what I wonder is, uh, uh, so how how did you sort of uh, like ten seconds was the goal, right? And how did how did how did you determine that 10 seconds of petting? Like my cat won't let me pet him for 10 seconds. So how'd you, 10 seconds seems like, you know, seems like like years for, 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 for touching a cat. Yeah, we, we did this kind of informally, just watched a few of the volunteers in my lab trying to right. interact with different cats. And, you know, we thought maybe about, we counted 10 pets just to see what that, looked like and it seemed mm -hmm. like a pretty reasonable amount for those social cats mm -hmm. you know not the ones that are running away or trying mm -hmm. to duck away from you or anything like that but the social ones that seemed to be a pretty reasonable amount of time and it wasn't mm. quite as long as a lot of the cats that were social would allow mm. so we figured you know if it was the case that it was escape maintained we want to go a little bit on the low side uh, so mm. we just went with that. It was just a simple way to quantify whether we met the goal or not. Um, and we figured even if it, that was a little bit short for a potential adopter, they could probably get a little bit longer time with the cat if they went slowly. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that's kind of why we shot for just 10, about 10 seconds, 10 pets. That's right on. And then, and then how did you sort of determine, I mean, there's just so, obviously there's so many, and you probably, I think you touch on some of this in the discussion, uh, but there's so many sorts of, uh, you know, little variables here, uh, like, like the type of petting or, or kind of, or mm -hmm. even the, the intensity of petting. I, you know, I worked mm -hmm. with a, I worked with a, uh, uh, autistic young man who, um, you know, just was so excited to see my dog one day and, and uh you know he had a big grin on his face and he wanted to pet the dog and he just slapped it on the back as hard as possible um but he had he had no idea because he just didn't know his own strength i know that's yeah. a bit of a a bit of an extreme but how, you know uh, we're, we're how did you sort of determine you know i guess uh, determine and then what did it look like what was sort of the, the quality of the petting <laughs> Yeah, you don't really capture that in the data, do you? But the quality really changed over the course of the study from mm. the functional analysis to the end of treatment. In the FA, we were hardly getting any pets in because as soon as we started to reach toward the cat, aggression happened immediately. Mm. And we were getting, you know, a little bloodied up at certain times. Uh, mm. So that wasn't very pleasant. So the pets were very minimal if we even made contact in some cases. But by the end of the study, the cats were curling up on us and rubbing oh. against us and, you know, awesome. purring. It was, it was, it was really sweet to see. Yeah. yeah so the quality amazing. really changed over the course of the study. That's amazing. You talked about getting all bloodied up. Um, what, what, uh, what, what was sort of, I, I, there was a reference to Kevlar. So you had some Kevlar sleeves going on. It seems like Kevlar, for folks that don't know, is 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 the material you find in in kind of bulletproof vests, and it's often used, you know, for 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 you know, especially with children that might have a sort of a tendency to 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 bite or whatnot, um, um, or other sorts of things, and and it's often used as kind of protective equipment and kind of those kinds of scenarios. So it seems like you know the way to go. How do, how did the how did the Kevlar sleeves do for protecting you guys? 
I do not recommend using those Kevlar sleeves. <laughs> I spoke to our vet and asked, you know, is this the right, you know, grade of Kevlar that I should be using? And he said, yeah, right. that looks good. Uh, but, you know, it just did not protect us from those really sharp, pointy claws and teeth. Um, you know, these are cats that are aggressive, so they're not exactly getting their nails trimmed regularly either. So those little needles are going right through the Kevlar sleeves. Um, Dr. Payne and his lab, they use those big leather animal handling gloves, um, which seem to be a lot better. So we are looking at some different options for protective equipment for future studies for sure. Oh, that's amazing. Um, and then, so then I think, and eventually you kind of got to like leather, leather gloves, I think, or, or whatnot. I was thinking of sort of those yeah. gardening, those long kind of sleeve covering gardening gloves that are meant to protect you from thorns and whatnot. Thorns mm-hmm. seem to be kind of pretty close to cat claws. Yeah. And those are the, those big leather gloves um, are definitely much better. We were trying to keep our fingers out to, because this was our first study and we wanted to make sure that we weren't you know, introducing something else strange to the experimental condition, but Mm -hmm. we wanted to have our fingers out a little bit so that we could actually pet the cat's fur. And so the tactile sensation to the cat would be the same as without protective equipment. Um, But yeah, that did not work out very well. (laughs) Eventually we got weightlifting gloves, turned them upside down. So the Mm. leather was on top and put a really thick, plastic insert on top of our hands Uh, and that did help but not quite as great as those big leather gloves for sure (laughs) that's amazing so what did what did uh, the actual uh treatment look like maybe you could just kind of talk us through that sure so the problem behavior the aggression was escape maintained Mm. and so we just wanted to see if we could switch the contingency and used a differential reinforcement of other behavior. So as long as the cat did not aggress toward us, Mm. they got the break. So we only went with one pet in the beginning Mm. (laughs) as the requirement uh, and worked up from there, just adding on a pet each time. Um, The cat went three trials without aggression. So we did a little bit of within session schedule thinning. Mm. And till we got to 10 pets, without aggression before getting that break and the breaks were only 10 seconds. So Mm. they were pretty short. We thought that a potential adopter wouldn't really give a super long break. So we wanted to try to make it as realistic as possible. Did you, did you ever find, cause now we see this with our cats that, uh, Sometimes, you know, you think you're following the rule and you're stopping when you're supposed to, but sometimes you stop and they pull back and they want you to keep going. Did you ever get any of that where they're like, keep going, keep going? (laughs) Um, Actually, you know, towards the end of treatment, they were hanging around us a lot more and just laying next to us and, you know, trying not trying to duck away or anything like that. But in the beginning, they were still ducking and, you know, backing up and. But once that um, they had enough experience with the contingency, like, oh, this isn't, I'm not being asked for too much here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they learned that we weren't so bad after all. I know you weren't like looking for this. And often uh, uh, this is sort of analogous to kind of, uh, you know, some self-injurious behavior kind of cases where 
you know, um, the origin of sort of the SIB is often something, you know, medical or, 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 or some sort of, you know, um, uh, what am I trying to say? Sort of, a, a, a intense increased intensity of some sort of, you know, self-stimulatory behavior or whatnot. But generally speaking, you know, we don't really care where it started, obviously we're going to do medical assessments and whatnot, but in the end we're, 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 we're sort of concerned with the current function so we can provide a treatment with, with the cats. Do you have any idea sort of why cats were so aggressive from petting? Was there any sort of information maybe from, from, uh, from Rochelle or whatever, and sort of like historically, and is it maybe, is that just a trauma thing? I, you know, I don't know. Yeah, you know, like with people, we don't necessarily have a full historical account of the mm -hmm. development of the behavior. And that was definitely the case with the cats as well. Um, but I, I can say that we checked with the um, rescue group and just made sure that they were all up to date on their shots. Mm, and they gotcha. didn't have any particular medical conditions that might mm. be maybe exacerbating the problem. They all appeared to be healthy at the time that we worked with them hmm. and uh, we're all fully vaccinated. So okay. we tried our best to make sure that at least from a medical perspective, the cats were, you know, there was no medical reason why this should be happening. Yeah. But as to why that it developed, you know, there could be a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. The cats were at a, a, a pet smart <laughs> mm. just in the kennels and so there were lots of people coming by mm -hmm. people walking their dogs little kids tapping on the windows even sure, though their signs yeah. don't do that you know kids do uh and so that can be really stressful for the cats there were volunteers who had come to clean out the kennels and so you know it it might have been the case that they had it was scary it, or something and you know, it just became aversive when people tried to pet them in that setting. Mm. Um, it's hard to say without seeing mm -hmm. them outside of that, though. No, it's for sure. It's just speculation. It's really hard to know. But you know, th th that makes sense. Um, what about sort of how did you kind of determine kind of where to pet the cat? One thing I I, I notice with, you know, our cats again um, is, uh, you know, I can get I can get away with ten, even twenty seconds of of petting on sort of the head and neck and back. Mm -hmm. But if I try to do a belly pet, which for whatever reason, you know, and this this is a whole other study, I imagine, but for whatever mm -hmm. reason, you know, we humans really want to touch that cute belly and uh, <laughs> and and stroke it, feel it, and we have some belief. I think maybe part of it maybe comes from dogs because I know dogs love it when you scratch their bellies and they just mm -hmm. eat it up. Uh, but you try to pet the belly of a cat, even a calm, relaxed, well-trained cat, and you you might get hurt. Mm -hmm. So how'd you kind of pick your areas? Yeah, so that, that's a great point. We definitely did not go for the belly too much because probably that same learning history on yeah. our end. <laughs> but we just, we simply went for whatever was available based on the cat's position relative to us. And so that yeah. was usually, like you said, the, the sides of the head, the top of the head, the back, that sort of thing. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com 
and go to the CBI store to place your order for CEUs. The first secret word is rescue. So funny. Um, <laughs> I, and also wondering if you had, I mean, I know this is only your first three cats and, and I, and, and, but before we finish today, I do want to talk about sort of kind of what else is happening in the cat lab, but, um, I'm wondering if, if even from your work or if maybe from other folks work, um, is, is there, is there any sort of breed kind of differences? Uh, you know, uh, like I know we have a, we have a Maine Coon, um, a rescue and he reminds me of, uh, folks, you're just going to have to Google these things. Uh, he reminds me of, uh, of a ragdoll cat. And I don't know if you've ever seen a ragdoll cat, but they're literally, uh, like like a rag doll like you could pick it up and and, and 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 you know from its center it will just drop down like it's like it's like it's uh you know a doll with no stuffing um and it'll just hang there for hours and you can and and with the main coon you can really just he's like a dog as far as sort of you know the the acceptance of sort of the physical attention we can rub him for hours on end and he never tries to get away um did you i mean you only had the three cats but uh, did you notice in this study or maybe in some of the other work you're doing any sort of difference between breeds? We haven't looked into that specifically in our lab, but just like you're saying, I, I have read about individual differences in temperament and tendencies towards certain behaviors for certain cats, like whether or not they like water, those sorts yeah. of things. Uh, but that really hasn't been a focus that of our research so far simply because we're trying to help the local rescue groups sure. get their cats adopted and so we're basically taking any cat that fits the criteria for our studies and i think that those those main coons are pretty popular yep. <laughs> and probably would get scooped up pretty quickly yes absolutely and for those that don't know the main coon yeah, the the telltale sign of the Maine Coon is right above their eyes. The furish is the fur pattern looks just like the letter M, and mm. so you can tell right away it's a Maine Coon. So uh, they're they're just wicked. Um, so then, uh, what was the other question I had was um, around sort of. What what was so you went through the you essentially went through the intervention you got them up to the ten seconds. What was this last sort of session? This last sort of um, phase, this natural naturalistic interactions phase. What was the point of that, and what was going on there? Yeah, so we wanted to try to mimic what it would be like for a potential adopter, and just let people go in with very minimal instruction on how to interact with the cats and see if they would be able to interact with them in sort of a brief encounter, like at an adoption event. Mm. And so we just said, here's some toys and things that you can use. Um, it was either a volunteer in another research assistant in my lab or a volunteer with the rescue organization who might be interacting with the cats, but hadn't been involved in our treatment. And so they came in and we just said for about five minutes, just interact with the cat. Hmm. Just, you know, if, if you get to about 10 pets or so, just, you know, back off a little bit, give them a little break, and then you can go right back and pet them. Mm -hmm. And so we just gave those sort of minimal instructions and saw what happened, basically. And could they interact with the cat without aggression? 
they got to decide whether they wanted to use the protective equipment or not. Mm. And it, it went really well, even without the protective equipment. So we were really, very, really pleased with that. And so were the adopters sort of given any kind of, you know, uh, sort of training beyond sort of uh, to sort of continue this process? Or was it just sort of, you know, cats are taking 10 seconds of petting. Now it's all up to you. <laughs> we offered uh, to consult with the adopters if they'd like to, but mm. none of them reached out to us and didn't mm. report any aggression issues. Uh, I think once the cat settled into the home, they were pretty content to be out of the kennels again. So I think that probably played into it as well. Totally. But yeah, we gave some general instructions and um, they seemed to do just fine on their own. So we were very happy that they were successful adopted and staying in their homes to date and you said uh really cool you said um i believe you said in the discussion something about sort of the cats got adopted and you and 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 were still adopted at time of publishing so how much time mm -hmm. sort of was in between that yeah it you know, it was almost a year later by the wow. time it was published. And even now, the cats are still in their homes, as far as we know. Nobody's reported to us that they've been relinquished or right. sent back to the rescue. So, and so far, so good. I think that's that's just the greatest part. You get that sort of long-term, you know, kind of follow-up to show that it was really working out well. Um, um, and then just the last thing. I don't know that there was, you know, maybe you could just explain it a little bit. So where did, uh, it, it seemed like in the, it was in the naturalistic sort of section that kind of toys, toys entered the game. Mm -hmm. um, so what was it about toys? Like, why did you add toys, number one? And then, and I'm totally not surprised, but it, it, I, I got to say, these are the two best graphs that I've ever seen in my 20 years in the field. And I say that because there's two graphs where it shows zero problem behavior and then a little and then a little arrow above it and it says laser pointer. And I'm like, <laughs> of course, laser pointers are the best. And why wouldn't it? My, every cat loves the laser pointer. It's the most amazing thing on the planet. So what, what was going on with the toys? <laughs> They're available to the potential adopters when they go back to interact with the cats. And so we just introduced them as something that the cats might enjoy. That was an option uh, to play with them right. uh, during the petting. And so, yeah, I agree. <laughs> it's a great, a great demonstration there. And we're probably going to incorporate some more of the positive reinforcers into uh, future studies. But it mostly for this study, it was just a way to simulate a potential adopter experience with the cat and just see how how they could interact with people after the treatment. Oh, that's awesome. I just love I, don't, I just love laser pointers and cats. It's like the greatest thing ever. Um, <laughs> oh, they're so cute. Yeah. I mean, my my one of my cats just uh, is always hiding behind the couch and just doesn't want to interact with us. But you get that laser pointer out and all of a sudden he's your best friend again. It's just the greatest <laughs> thing ever. So, yeah. so, so 
what what else is what so what else are you doing in a cat lab i mean this seems like the the best thing to do in a cat lab is 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 to help cats get adopted i mean i just love um you know the whole the whole premise of it all but what other kinds of studies are you going to be doing yeah so we're going to be doing some follow up studies on the treatment incorporating different approaches you know the dro was um a really simple demonstration that this actually works with the cats mm-hmm. but we think there might be better ways to um give the ch- cats more choice mm. and perhaps incorporate some more positive reinforcement into the t- uh treatment situation uh we really want to get into the foster homes and mm. work with the families who are fostering the cats to get yes. the cats ready for their new homes and work on any behavioral issues that they're experiencing So we have a lot of studies in the pipeline. Um, I've been super fortunate to just have some really amazing students at UHCL. And, Mm. you know, you mentioned the cat lab and people's eyes light up and they just have all kinds of ideas. So uh, Amanda Davis, Jennifer Wynn and Kathy Fan are my new students who will be developing and implementing research projects with the cats in the next year. That's so amazing. I mean, because it would be really cool to sort of see, you know, and, and I suppose this could is probably a, a sort of a longer term goal, but to see some of this stuff, you know, become part of other shelters, you know, and sort of become kind of kind of the, the normal practice, because I think a lot of cats um, are, 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 are euthanized because of aggression. Yeah. And it's sad there, you know, there are a lot of cats that are euthanized and aggression is one of the top reasons that cats are rehomed or relinquished Mm -hmm. in the first place. Um, So ultimately I would love to pair up with some veterinarians to uh, supplement their practice, maybe do some research uh, with the vets in their clinics and things like that. Um, I have a, a wonderful BCBA who's been working with me the last few years, Tori Fletcher. She mm. is one of the authors on this paper, but she's been working with me on all of these um, new projects as well. She's a cat lover as well. And she and I have had lots of discussions about, you know, how we can enhance veterinary visits and things like that. So that's down the road, but definitely one of our interests. And I guess there's no uh, sort of uh, uh, ethics board you gotta you gotta go through to to work on there the cats, is, or actually. is there? There okay. is. So what's that yes. look like? What's an ethics <laughs> approval for working with cats look like? Yeah, it's the IACUC, the Institutional uh, Animal. Oh my goodness, you're gonna have to edit that out. No worries. Uh, I'll tell you what it is. Hold on. It's <laughs> the Institutional Animal Care and Use Committee. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. And, and so what would, and again, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm not a, I'm, I, I don't know much about sort of animal research in general, but like, would, would the folks that are doing kind of the basic research with all the rats and the pigeons, would they use that same board as well? Or is this just more yeah. for, yeah. Yep. It's the same board. Um, and so this is the first time that people have been done any cat research at yep. UHCL. Yep. And so it was fun to, have those conversations with um all of my colleagues and the vet that's uh involved in our IACUC. So yeah, it was it was definitely a new experience. I've been serving on the IACUC since I got to UHCL, mm. but this has been in the most recently um 
just my first involvement in having my own protocols go through. So, yep, there is an sort of IRB for animals. That's awesome. Well, I'm glad there is something out there. Um, okay, really cool. So, I mean, there, there, there's not much else we can kind of cover here, but this was just a really neat study. And uh, and uh, you, you had mentioned kind of when we chatted before this that um, – uh, you're familiar with uh, the work of 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 our next fellow who's going to talk about cats. You know what a little bit about what Stephen Payne does. Yes, uh, Stephen Payne and I go way back to UF days. Wow. Uh, but actually, a few years ago at an ABAI conference, he and I got talking, and I said, "You know, we're going to be doing some cat work." He's like, "Oh, really? I'm starting a cat lab too." So. <laughs> I told him, I'm like, we need to collaborate on some things going forward. So we're going to look into that, too. I cannot wait for the ABAI cat symposium. That's going to be the greatest thing ever. (laughs) (laughs) So cool. Cool. Great stuff. Thanks. Thanks for coming on and talking cats with me. I'm, I'm looking forward to kind of seeing some of the other research that comes out. Maybe we'll bring you back on and kind of hear what else you're doing is after you get a few more studies put out. Uh, just re- really neat topic. And, and thanks for being on the show. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. This has been a lot of fun. Awesome. We're, we're getting into uh, the second part of our uh, of our uh, two part uh, episode on uh, Behavior analysis uh, with uh, with cats and dogs um, in the context of uh, animal shelters. Uh, I, I really was excited to get uh, uh, first Dr. Fritz and and now Dr. Payne um, on the podcast. I'm uh, uh, I, I try not to I try not I try hard I try not to not mix my sort of you know other other kinds of uh, you know um, I guess beliefs and whatnot into the podcast too much. Try to be as impartial as I can, but I'm, uh, some folks will know I am vegan and I'm, and I'm, I'm big on animal rights and I do some animal rights activism sort of outside of work. And, um, one of the big areas that's really important to me is, is, uh, you know, is, is, is adopt the adoption of, of, of cats and dogs in shelters. And, uh, so it was really great to start to see, uh, folks in our field doing work kind of in this area and uh both dr Payne and dr uh fritz uh happened to publish uh in january uh separate research articles they weren't connected at all on functional analysis of cat aggression which i just thought was super awesome um and uh after talking with uh dr Payne some more discovered he's also doing some really good work uh with uh with dogs and dog aggression and other kinds of dog behaviors that uh uh, that tend to limit, you know, the dogs from being um, adopted from shelters, and so just really, really, uh, really, really cool work that these that these folks are doing, and so a, a real honor to to first have Dr. Fritz and then now have uh, Stephen Payne on the podcast. So thanks for being on the show. Oh, well, happy to be here. So I always like to kind of do a little, uh, a bit of an origin story on kind of how folks, you know kind of got into the field of ABA and, uh, and, uh, this is no different. So why don't you just kind of tell us kind of what, what brought you to ABA and eventually to the work you're doing now? Sure. So, uh, it's a kind of a, a, probably a story that's pretty similar to the way most people get into ABA, which is I was interested in psychology going into, uh, college. Um, I went to the university of Florida after high school. And I just happened to sign up for a course that was open. 
uh, and it happened to be uh, the uh, course uh, EAB 3764, which is the intro to applied behavior analysis. And I had no idea what this course was. Um, and uh, I happened uh, to, you know, go into it. And like, like most undergraduates, you don't really know who your professors are. Uh, you're just like, oh, that's the professor for whatever class. Uh, and I happen to have Brian Awada as my professor, um, who, uh, yeah, I, I know. I was like, who, who, this guy, you know, whatever. Uh, <laughs> you know, one of the biggest names in the field, but I had no idea who he was. Um, but, uh, you know, he's been in the field long enough that he is a very, very good advocate <laughs> for the field. Uh, and I think I, I was just really drawn in by uh, this real scientific approach to understanding behavior in very objective ways that I just wasn't getting out of my other psychology classes. And so uh, I took the course. I uh, did well in it um, enough that Dr. Wada uh, asked me to be a part of his research lab. Um, we all had to be parts of research labs anyway. Uh, as part of the undergraduate program at UF. And so I spent a semester in his research lab working with his graduate students. Uh, Dr. Uh, Fritz was a graduate student at the time and was sort of hmm. my graduate student uh, or one of my graduate student mentors along with Sarah Bloom and Jen Hammond. Uh, just hmm. a really uh, great group of graduate students at the time who've all you know, gone off and done awesome things on their own. And uh, so I really got into the research at that period. Uh, I ended up continuing on in the lab uh, after my required um, course uh, and uh, started doing some clinical work uh, under a grant that uh, Brian had at the time on self-injurious behavior. Uh, and really after that, I was starting to consider graduate school uh, and so um, met with Brian and he uh, encouraged me to apply to the University of Kansas uh, to work with Claudia Dozier, who ended up being my mm. advisor. Uh, and so from there, uh, did a lot of research uh, in a bunch of different areas, including um, functional analysis, uh, did some uh, translational work with preschool children, um, did uh, some work on group contingencies, uh, just kind of all over the place in terms of the mm -hmm. type of research that I did. Uh, and so uh, I'll one of the um, so pretty much uh, all of the work that I was doing at the time was with humans and and mostly with uh, typically developing children. Although I did have uh, a lot of background here and there um, working with uh, the more clinical populations that behavior analysts normally work with, particularly adults and children with intellectual and developmental disabilities mm -hmm. and uh, uh, autistic individuals. And so uh, following uh, graduation, um, I ended up uh, going and actually doing clinical work for a year. I went to work uh, for Melmark, Pennsylvania. And mm. following uh, my work there, I was able to do a little bit of research as part of that job. Um, but uh, there was an opening at Fresno State, uh, where I work now, and I was able to apply to that job and um, got started working there. And I think one of the, the things that I kind of learned going in there was, uh, well, one, there was already a really great faculty member there, Marianne Jackson, and she mm -hmm. uh, does really, really great work with uh, individuals with autism, uh, particularly in verbal behavior, but as well as some work on the uh, assessment and treatment of problem behavior. And so I was kind of trying to find my niche. 
uh, are my niche. And uh, one thing that I've been pretty passionate about, I'm vegan as well, uh, was uh, animal shelters. Hmm. And I had, uh, throughout uh, most of graduate school uh, with my, uh, my wife, uh, we were volunteering at a no-kill animal shelter out in Missouri uh, and basically going out there every week, mostly just uh, working with cleaning and uh, things like that, providing good interaction, uh, mostly with cats, although they occasionally had dogs. Uh, and so um, come, I learned through that a lot of the sort of ins and outs of the shelter world, the way that they talk, the mm. sort of problems and issues that they have. And so once I moved to Fresno, I started looking uh, for uh, no-kill animal shelters here. And there's a really, really great one called Valley Animal Center. Uh, and I went and met uh, with their team there. And they were really, really open to help. They had uh, uh, quite a few animals who are were essentially long-term residents there. Um, and in particular, they had three dogs who had each been there for over six years. Uh, and so uh, basically what we said that we uh, would try and do is see if we could help out these dogs. Uh, and so I worked with uh, an animal trainer who was uh, named Kip Perry, who was part uh, or working with the shelter and uh, just got some ins and outs and advice from her. And then me, uh, my graduate student at the time, Tatum Winslow uh, and uh, Casey Masudi, uh, put together this study that ended up being Tatum's thesis where we conducted a functional analysis with uh, those three dogs. And mm -hmm. we were successful in identifying the functions and developing treatments for them. And basically after we did that, the shelter was like, okay, what do, else do you wanna do? Uh, and so that really opened up a lot of avenues for the different types of research that we've been able to do there and publish, including uh, the recent work with cats. Uh, and so that's pretty much it. <laughs> Well, wow, that's well, that's that's a long great, story great, long. No, that's I love the long story long. You know, I, I had a guest on recently that uh, uh, he's uh, I'll leave the name out for now um, until until the episode comes out. But he's he's sort of been around for a long time, and you know, he he, he just he shared stories of his experiences with folks, kind of like you, yourself with Doctor Iwata and folks like Doctor Bloom um, and and Doctor Dozier. Um, he was sharing his experiences with, you know, some really, you know, cool cats from the sixties and whatever. <laughs> and he went on for quite a long time and, 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 and kind of got a hold of me a few days later and said, you know, I, I think I talked too long. Nobody wants to hear this stuff. And I'm, I, I'm, it's the opposite. I think people really like hearing, you know, about sort of how all these different names they, they hear about in the field are connected and, and, and how folks kind of, you know, interact with them. So it's, it's really neat hearing these stories. Yeah. It's um, sort of iffy telling the stories. Cause you know, you, you don't want to name drop, but you also want to yeah. you know, give shout outs to people who are really influential in bringing you up. And so. A hundred percent. Well, as, as a podcast host, I love it when people name drop cause it gives me people I can call up to do more interviews. Uh, so <laughs> I appreciate that go. piece. Um, <clears throat> You know, it's interesting you were talking about sort of how your story of kind of getting into ABA. I, I noticed this a couple of times now and, and, and when I kind of do these origin, ask this origin kind of story question. And folks will often say, you know, it's off, they get into ABA in, in, in much the same way as a lot of other folks. But there is actually quite a quite a big difference I'm starting to notice now 
where you sort of have one group of folks that gets into the field through through work through working some sort of job as a as a maybe a, a, a 18 or 19 year old um, you know with autistic children doing ABA as some sort of RBT behavior interventionist or child care worker or whatever the term is at the time and then finding it as a science it's a science and and kind of going that direction where other folks like yourself uh, you know, just happen to take an intro course in in ABA, not knowing what it is, and kind of really fall in love with it that way, and then start getting sort of connected with all of these, you know, really big names that kind of help push it forward. I started doing this podcast with folks from Canada. Completely different experience because in Canada, uh, for the folks that are, except for you know, and, and except for the folks that attended American universities, and it was interesting that uh, the interview I did with. Um, uh, um, uh, a woman from Botswana, her whole origin story was traveling to the States and then going to her, doing her undergrad. And it, it actually ends up being sort of the same story as yours mm-hmm. and a lot of others. Uh, but, but uh, in Canada, it's a completely different because, you know, our, our, our undergrad programs that's changed a bit now don't have intro to ABA courses. Um, we don't have Brian Awadas, you know, sort of sitting <laughs> at the university uh, wanting to teach undergrads and those sorts of things. And so, we're often kind of taking much a much different kind of route into the field. Um, and it's always just, you know, uh, it's always just interesting to kind of hear, you know, uh, you know, folks just sort of calmly uh, dro- dropping all these names, as you say, um, um, uh, and, and, and just to be able to have the privilege to really be able to contact, come in contact with all these folks. So, you know, it sounds like you had a, had a really, a really, a really good experience. Yeah. I also love was lucky yeah <laughs> for sure yeah i also loved uh, uh you know that yeah you, you're vegan this is great yeah. we, we, we should i, I should have brought <laughs> this up beforehand in our, <laughs> in our pre-chat yes there are actually and uh I'll, I'll do a shameless plug here i i did start a facebook page a couple of years ago called vegan behavior analysts so feel free to join uh yes send me an invite i will there, there's a few hundred of us there that uh um like to have these kinds of conversations and I'm definitely going to find I finally I finally have an episode I can I can plug on that page so I'm <laughs> looking forward to that as well um yeah so yeah, you you totally uh, you're you're totally on the same page as me and and and, and it's really nice to hear that, kind of, that that was sort of you know kind of the motivation for you kind of kind of going going into this piece you know I was looking at at uh, at and you before I want to talk some more about sort of the dog study and then we'll kind of and and, and then we'll kind of maybe finish off with the cat um also want to talk a little bit about that other dog study uh around the sort of the 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 reducing of the barking i thought that was a really interesting one too um but just uh, just maybe a couple of uh, factoids as well as sort of a, a an explanation of the term for folks that may or may not understand what 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 is it that makes a shelter a it seems like an obvious question but what's sort of the difference in a no-kill shelter and a shelter that's not a no-kill shelter. Yeah, so so it's a it's a kind of um, kind of an interesting uh, movement in in the United States. And bas- mm. basically, the the big difference between um, what we would call a no shelter and uh, um, that the term high kill shelter gets thrown around sometimes. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. I don't particularly mm. like it. Um, mm. But uh, there's a group called the No Kill Advocacy Group. Um, mm. And it's a big advocacy group here in the United States. 
And essentially, uh, they are all about providing resources and providing tips for shelters um, to try and increase uh, their live release rate, essentially increase the amount of the number of animals that leave the shelter um, without being euthanized. Mm -hmm. uh, and so shelters, um, uh, one, one of the kind of criticisms that no-kill shelters sometimes get is that a lot of no-kill shelters are not municipal shelters, meaning that they're not connected to animal control. They uh, can mm. sort of choose who they, they um, take in or they don't have, you know, mm. city contracts. Um, right. However, there are a lot that do, uh, including uh, probably one of the most notable ones is the Kansas City Pet Project, which is uh, the entire metropolitan uh, Kansas City, Missouri area. Uh, is no kill. Um, and Fresno, mm. uh, our, our new mayor, Jerry Dyer, is actually promoting and trying to bring Fresno to be a no kill city. Um, mm. And so there are a lot of different uh, factors that go into trying to improve those live release rates. Um, the sort of big thing is that the shelters uh, dedicate, um, essentially dedicate themselves to any animals that they bring in. So if mm. people adopt an animal and it doesn't work out, then they can bring the animal back to the shelter at any time and the shelter will take care continue to mm. take care of that animal. Uh, mm. And so the, the real goal is to try and avoid euthanasia with, you know, certain exceptions for health reasons or for really severe aggression in dogs that's, mm. that's you know, incredibly resistant to treatment and, mm -hmm. and potentially mm -hmm. dangerous. Um, but, you know, that, that also... Uh, you know, a couple of different things that sort of factor into that are, one, um, the shelter's ability to have a good foster network so that if uh, they can send animals into people's homes temporarily mm. so that they have more room to bring animals into the shelter. Uh, TNR programs where people will uh, trap feral cats, uh, have them neutered, and then return them to mm. the area to reduce mm. the kitten population. Uh, and then more recently, uh, there's been a big push for behavioral services. So it's uh, mm. like some of the work that we do, trying to treat problem behaviors and do obedience training for animals in the shelter so that once they're adopted, they're less likely to be returned because of behavioral issues, uh, as well as um, providing ongoing support. Uh, so, uh, uh, for example, uh, the Best Friends uh, Animal Society is probably one of the, the better known no-kill um, shelters. Uh, mm. And they have a, a sites in Los Angeles, um, and their original one is uh, kind of in the middle of the desert, Nevada. Uh, <laughs> but they have um, some large, basically, phone lines where you can call and get behavioral help with your animals. Uh, and it's, wow. you know, for animals that are adopted from them, but uh, it's it's, you know, again, just trying to do everything we can to keep these animals out of the shelter once they've been adopted, as well as try to get them, you know, adopted and ba basically get the adoption rate to be higher than the intake rate, which, you know, is yeah. kind of an it's a losing battle, but it's a losing battle worth fighting. <laughs> Absolutely. And is there any sort of uh, this is it's really cool to hear about all, the, all of this, these these activities. How how long is do you think this sort of no kill sort of uh, movement has has been going on? Do you think uh, it's been going on for? Uh, I mean, as long as I <laughs> I can think of. Um, mm. pro probably one of one of the biggest figures in the movement. Uh, he's a, an animal ad advocate uh, named Nathan Winograd. 
And he wrote a really great book called Redemption, um, which I highly recommend. But it essentially cool. talks about the tenets of the movement. He's a, he's the head of the No Kill Advocacy Center. Um, so, you know, just I, I'm not affiliated with him anyway, but I, I sure, highly sure. recommend uh, the book. It's a good one. Cool. Check it out. I, the reason I ask is I so we have a rescue dog that we adopted from Texas um, about eight years ago. and. At the time, we were told. So this was it was interesting. This this uh, the shelter that had her. Um, she was only three months old, um, and all, all we had was a YouTube video, a thirty second YouTube video to sort of go on, um, and we sort of presumed that it was legit, and and gave them five hundred five hundred dollars, and just hoped that three weeks later a dog would show up in in <laughs> Vancouver, um, and fortunately it did. But uh, so it turned out to be legit. But they were telling us that. Um, at the time, and and I had a so I, 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 to preface I for folks that are have have already maybe listened to part one of the podcast with Jennifer, we talked a little bit about this as well, um, and she said it's no longer the case because she's in Texas, and but at the time, there was there was there there was a lot of these you know as you call them high kill kind of shelters, and there was apparently a, a law. And maybe maybe this was just the, the the shelter's way of just trying to entice us to adopt this dog, and this wasn't actually true. But they were telling us that there was a, a law that in Texas, um, if dogs are were returned back to the pound or the shelter in Texas, they were automatically killed. So it was sort of like a a one, uh, you know, a one strike kind of rule. So if you return mm-hmm. that dog, it's always going to get killed. And so this particular shelter and apparently several others had a had their main sort of you know mission statement was to adopt dogs out of state so that if they did get returned mm-hmm. they'd have a better chance of survival but then but Dr. Fritz sort of suggested that that is something that may not be in play anymore in Texas and I'm wondering if this no advocacy group may have had something to do with that yeah i i would assume i mean it, it's kind of been a general just push in the united states you know there's obviously mm-hmm. certain you know, every city has an animal shelter, uh, whether mm-hmm. big or small. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. there's going to be certain cities that have, um, you know, more resources and certain cities provide more funding for their animal services than others. I know one of, one of the big issues um, right now in Fresno is that our municipal animal shelter has a very high uh, kill rate um, mm. and a very low live release rate. Uh, and so there's even pro there's a lot of political pressure and protests that go on in Fresno just because of that the way that that particular shelter operates. Mm. Uh, mm. And so it sounds like there's there's a little bit of political cloud, um, particularly mm. given our our new um, our new mayor who I, I did not vote for and I disagree with him in a, a, a lot of different things. Uh, but yeah. that's one one issue that I that I definitely encourage him to continue to pursue. Mm. I doubt he listens well, to this podcast, but <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll forward him a copy of the episode for sure. <laughs> um, uh, and one other thing that kind of get me thinking, it, because I, I love I love just this application of behavior analysis to, toward you know towards something good, sort of something good for humanity, and definitely something good for the animals. Uh, I wonder if there's um, you know some role we can take you know, as well in, in some of these, in some of these other pieces, just in general that you've already talked about, but also specifically around, uh, because this is sort of the ongoing, you know, I think it's sort of the ongoing argument of, 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 of buy a dog versus adopt a dog, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and 
you know, are there are there other is there other kind of work we can do to sort of you know discourage you know and and I know some there'll be a lot of listeners out there that have bought dogs and and I'm not I'm not out here to try to attack you but mm-hmm. I do I it just it just I looking at looking at some of the stats in in um in that first article you were referring to it was uh, it was it said 6.5 million cats and dogs are relinquished to shelters every year um and uh, and of that number 1.5 million are euthanized every year which is just you know a ridiculous amount of animals yet we continue to sort of breed and and create new animals to add to this population that are not going to help make those other numbers kind of go down yeah no i, I... but yeah so uh just just uh you know it just just makes me think that if folks kind of are out there and are reading some of these articles to start thinking about sort of other ways you know we can apply our science to kind of you know you know whether it be to you know to sort of encourage you know more adopting and and, and less buying and you know and less of these puppy mills as they call it and those sorts of things definitely i mean i you know one one thing that i'm i'm really happy about is uh it's i forget how many years ago it was but it, it was uh since i started living in california um the state of california actually passed a law essentially banning puppy mills um, wow. Now, now the, in, most states have laws banning puppy mills, but the the uh, the state of California sort of went a step further and made it such that uh, there are uh, you cannot have a retail operation that mm-hmm. sells pets from breeders. Uh, if you are a breeder, you you can still you know breed breed dogs and and sell them, and mm. you know there, there's obviously. A, a market for that and you know there's sure. people who have dogs for very specific things like police dogs and things like that where certain breeds are you know ne- uh, necessary um but uh in terms of the state of california you can't go into a pet store and buy a dog that's not a rescue all of the dogs mm. in any pet store uh across california are rescued so Brilliant. you know what one thing is uh if you do have any political clout uh you know <laughs> uh see if you can you know work with local lawmakers to do something about it yeah um, but on yeah. the other side of that you know at a more kind of personal level uh fostering uh mo- most shelters mm-hmm. nowadays have fostering programs and so if you do have room to bring in an animal temporarily into your home um uh, although i i I'm terrible at doing that. Uh, every, every, <laughs> almost every animal we've ever fostered ended up uh, being what we call a fail foster in the field, uh, <laughs> meaning we ended up adopting. <laughs> it's oh, just I totally get it. Yep. Um, but and you know, if you are a behavior analyst and you do that, then obviously, uh, you know, given the right uh, supervision or, or background knowledge, or just you know, yeah. reading a couple of good books, uh, um, you could certainly train the animals uh, using uh, the skills that we have. Um, but uh, yeah, those two things, just making sure that you adopt, um, and also you know, just promoting that trap, neuter, return. Um, we've got some yes. traps. <laughs> That we have we haven't used them yet but um, right right it's, right it's definitely uh a, probably one of the best ways to reduce uh the cat population is by preventing them from breeding uh in the wild and we could thank bob barker for a lot of that for sure oh yes definitely <laughs> um okay well this is great and and kind of a good segue kind of kind of back into your work about sort of 
you know, uh, what might prevent one from, you know, uh, adopting or fostering a dog and uh, or, or a cat for that matter. Uh, and, you know, certainly there's going to be things like, you know, allergies and, and, you know, whether the animal gets along with other animals, if you already have one, um, you know, and so, and some of those, and then, you know, and then just things like size and color and sort of other mm-hmm. aesthetic reasons for, for getting an animal. But, but it sounds like, you know, one of, one of the big reasons folks will sort of choose an animal from a shelter is, 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 is those behaviors. I know when I went in to, you know, adopt, uh, went up our most recent cat, you know, the cat just kind of climbed right up on my chest and just laid there and snored. And I'm like, come on, nice moves, buddy. <laughs> yep. who, t- who taught you that? Was there a behavior analyst in the <laughs> shelter teaching these cats to crawl up people's chests and snore? Maybe there was, um, but you know, that really drew it into me or, or another, we had another cat, Oscar, who, um, who we talk about quite a bit in, in, uh, in Jen's episode, because Oscar kind of really would would fit the mold for, you know, uh, both, both I think both studies uh, that you folks did. Uh, I talk about Oscar, and he, he requires um, uh, Os- Oscar's gone now. We lost him to a coyote, but uh, he he lived eight years longer than he should have um, uh, because of us, because we had the fifteen mm-hmm. rules of Oscar that sort of prevented aggressive behavior. Um, <laughs> you know, don't dangle your hand, don't talk on the phone, uh, and and not look at him while you're talking on the phone, and you know, don't have a, don't have a conversation and, and and laugh, or he'll think you're laughing at him and attack you. Lots of things like that. Um, Max antecedent interventions. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, he had been in like five foster homes himself, and. And I think we were just blessed that it, the, the shelter that he lived at happened to be one of these no-kill ones, or we'd be, we, we mm-hmm. never would have gotten him. Um, but uh, we didn't know about his problem behaviors till we took him home. Um, uh, he was able, he was somehow again able to sort of, uh, you know, keep those, um, uh, you know, hidden at the shelter until we, until we got home. And, and because we were, you know, in the field, we were willing to sort of keep him and, 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 mm-hmm. and have a go at it. But not many people would do that. Um, so yeah, so be- behavior problems seem to be, you know, one of the, one of the, sort of the, the big three, as far as, uh, I think you mentioned that already as for kind of why folks, you know, don't ad- adopt animals. And so you've, you, you've done some kind of cool studies to kind of look at that. So this first study that you're talking about, that was the thesis, this was so, sort of, uh, you kind of taking, you know, that, uh, you know, those, those experience, some of your, I guess some, even some of your early experiences with Dr. Awada, uh, in functional analysis, and then your can kind of continued studies and, and starting to apply those to animals. What, uh, what, I guess what, number one, kind of what made you sort of decide to use a functional analysis and considering that, you know, folks hadn't done that before and, and, and why was this suddenly such a good idea? The second secret word is kitten. I mean, there's been a couple of uh, studies, and, and really, it's uh, it had just started um, where there was this movement in, in the applied animal behavior world, where uh, there's this sort of application of things that we've learned through applied behavior analysis, particularly in the area of uh, functional analysis. Uh, to non-human animals. Uh, and so N- Nicole Dory did one of the, the first studies, uh, which is really, really cool, uh, looking at the problem behavior of an olive baboon in, in a zoo. Mm. Uh, and um, then, you know, finding the function uh, and coming up with a function-based treatment. Uh, 
Uh, and so right. there, there was this sort of burgeoning area of, of research. Uh, and I think prior to our study, there was, I, I don't remember the exact order uh, that everything was published, but Nicole Dory did mm-hmm. do uh, some work on, um, uh, on dogs uh, with jumping, I, I believe, who were owned mm. uh, in mm. their owner's homes. And then Nate mm. Hall did, uh, uh, Dr. Hall did a study looking at stereotypy uh, with dogs. Right, um, yes. And so uh, kind of coming off of that, uh, so we noticed, you know, oh, there's a lot of uh, studies coming out, but pretty much all the studies are animals that are already in homes, um, mm. which, you know, although there is a risk that they could be returned, um, you know, the risk of euthanasia of those animals is quite a bit lower because, you know, adopters already kind of made a commitment response to, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm, to bringing mm-hmm. those animals home. So they're at least a couple of steps removed from the really big risk, which is yeah. uh, obviously euthanasia or the, the killing of the animal. Sure. And so we really wanted to take it a step ahead and bring it to the animal shelter. And so that's, that's kind of the, the, one of the reasons why uh, we decided to do it in in the shelter itself, uh, and mm. we were lucky enough that the you know the shelter was kind of really excited for the things we could do, and uh, mm-hmm. so we were actually able to run the functional analyses um, in uh, basically in vivo. Uh, we ran them in places Neat. where these behaviors happened. Um, so it's sort of like taking uh, you know I, I think one of the the nice things about having a long history of being involved in functional analysis research is, you know, when FA research first came out, it was all very, you know, tentative and, oh, we're going to do all these things in the most controlled settings and then gradually sort of expand into these new areas, new methodologies. And, you know, bringing it into the animal world, we, you know, I think it's important and this is what we kind of tried to do with uh, at least the first part of our study is to directly replicate some of that earlier work. But we also have this, you know, thousand studies worth of work uh, to build on. And so we were able to, in our study, uh, really try and cater some of our our functional analysis conditions to the specific animals or the specific area in which the behavior occurred and make all these modifications that had already been, you know, tested with humans um, but, you know, we, we didn't have to reinvent the wheel here and just come up with all these, you know, come up with all these brand new, you know, ideas. Uh, and so I, I think that was, um, you know, really helpful that just we, there's all this extant research on um, functional analysis of problem behavior in humans. And though yeah. the animal literature isn't as big, um, you know, we're behavior analysts. Behavior is behavior and mm-hmm. the behavior, mm-hmm. of, you know, uh, obviously there are biological differences to account for. but you know, the animals are engaging in problem behavior uh, because of the what's reinforcers are occurring in the environment. And we have great tools to identify those things. And so that's what we tried to do uh, and successfully did in this study is figure out, um, you know, what the functions of these particular problem behaviors were. Uh, and they were they were quite variable um, in, in the sort of behaviors we looked at. And so, so one, one thing that, you know, I, I find really fascinating about all this is when we look at a lot of uh, the, uh, you know, kind of behavioral science research, you know, the experimental analysis of behavior research, 
was often done was often done you know with animals pigeons mm-hmm. and, and and rats for the most part um and from that you know it became translated and and we we started to sort of apply these things to humans so it's so interesting to kind of reverse that you know yeah, now, kind of now backwards now, translated yeah now now all of our experimental analysis is done with humans and and now in in 2021 or you know in a few years back as well in the 21st century we're now able to apply this to you know the, the folks that really need it those cats and dogs well, and, and, and I, I mean that's the way the translational research is you know supposed to work it's not supposed to yeah. be just a, a, a one-way street where everything goes yeah. from basic to applied but applied is yeah. supposed to turn around and inform the basic which you know right has i i know has was been sort of a you know, philosophers of, of the fields have kind of mm. talked about how it has been such a one-way street for so long. True. Um, True. And so, you know, I, I think it's important, even though, you know, the, the work that we're doing, I wouldn't call basic in any way, but uh, no. we're kind of translating it uh, and really showing uh, not only the generality from, you know, the animal lab to humans, but showing yeah. that we can generalize these things that, you know, functional analysis wasn't developed in an animal lab. It was developed with humans as an yes. application of the stuff that yes. was done in animal labs. And so taking this thing that was developed with humans and bringing it back to animals uh, has just kind of been a cool, you know, <laughs> cool uh, thing to do. Totally. And I would love to see, and, you know, and, and, and this may be the vegan in me, but I would love to see, you know, some of our research come back and let's, let's do some good things for those pigeons and rats too. You know, what what, sure. what sorts of things can we give back to that that group that we've spent so much time sort of um, forcing through maze and and forcing to punch levers day after day after day? How can we, you know, you know, uh, you know, can 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 we can we start a pigeon and rat, uh, you know, uh, animal sanctuary uh, for former <laughs> former uh, behavior analysis test subjects or something, you know, to to at least let them live out the rest of their lives in in in, in somewhat. In, in in harmony who knows <laughs> um but yeah so with with this study just a couple of kind of questions i won't, won't go too much into it. we don't have a ton of time mm-hmm. and i do want to talk touch on a, a couple of the other ones but um just for, for and i highly recommend folks pick this up and take a look at it it's a great study and and and, and, and correct me if i'm wrong uh, here steven as i'm kind of summarizing but essentially you know you had three dogs um, um and you 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 chose dogs based on sort of the behaviors that were they were problematic but they weren't sort of overly aggressive behaviors per se mm-hmm. um um uh, you know and i think that makes sense because obviously that's a whole other game and you have to start including you know the victim um, in in the study uh you know that's a whole other level of ethics well, uh, approval uh, uh, yeah yeah honestly it, it was probably more to do with uh the um the university risk assessment people. yeah yeah no necessarily doubt, no doubt. graduate students who had never done animal research yeah. before working with aggressive dogs aggressive cats definitely is not a, is a little bit easier to get by although after talking to dr fritz about how the the standard kevlar arm protection that you might use for <laughs> you know uh you know potentially even human bites mm-hmm. uh was not protective from the, from from the claws of the cat the claw of the cat made it right through the kevlar armband and so i could see how it could be even more dangerous um but when when you were looking at uh, so you kind of you had the three do- you had the three dogs and they had you know uh, some different uh, i think one dog was you know tugging on the leash and 
you know, a couple of other dogs mm. were sort of, um, uh, you know, doing some other things. And, um, um, and you went through the kind of a sort of a traditional kind of FA conditions and, 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 and essentially the results were inconclusive. And then, so then you started kind of hypothesizing that the problem behavior was more related to the kennel itself um, or the, the environment of the kennel itself and sort of, you know, escaping the potentially mm-hmm. either escaping, you know, other dogs in the kennel, the noises of other dogs in the kennel or just being around them um, or just, or for the one dog in particular, who just like to uh, tug and kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, get us some new new (laughs) smells or whatnot. Um, And in the end, uh, you know, I I, I think you sort of, you did a pretty good job of determining the functions. Uh, But then you came up with, uh, from there, when you went into the intervention, it was essentially kind of a, you know, a DRO extinction thing where you're, but you're basically teaching all the dogs to sit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and sitting was kind of that replacement behavior for engaging in problem behavior. And I think anyone who sort of is an animal trainer now, or just even owns a, a dog and, uh, and, and has, uh, has, uh, you know, experience with problem behavior sit is usually the go-to kind of, um, command. I keep saying sit out loud. My dog is looking <laughs> at me strangely, but, um, uh, sit, sit, sit is kind of that go-to command because it, it, it is it, it is a it is a nice uh, sort of uh alternative behavior that prevents the engagement in other behaviors mm-hmm. so i guess the question is, is is why do we even care what the function is why don't we just teach all dogs to sit well i i think the kind of big issue here uh and and what we were trying to do with this particular study was to show, although, you know, obviously we didn't do the sort of negative test where we tested mm. functions that the FA didn't come up with and see if that mm-hmm. would have a treatment effect, um, mm-hmm. but use those reinforcers that we identified in the functional analysis in order to teach mm. those behaviors. Um, so, mm. for example, with uh, our leash puller, where we identified uh, essentially automatic reinforcement, pulling the leash gave him access to more access to the environment. Um, right. We taught him to sit, but we didn't use any treats or anything like that. We taught him to sit, such, and once he sat, then he could continue on and access the rest of the environment. Uh, right. And, uh, you know, for our, our two dogs with kennel aggression, uh, like Lily in there, her problem behavior was maintained by escape from other dogs. Well, if we just taught yeah. her to sit with food, that's not going to prevent her from engaging in problem behavior that's reinforced by escape from other dogs, she's still going to engage in problem behavior to escape from other dogs. Mm-hmm. So we used escape from other dogs as the reinforcer for teaching that behavior. And honestly, mm. we're almost um, like, like I, I think this is especially true with, uh, with Lily, but also is true with um, Darius, the other dog who engaged in kennel aggression. Uh, we were trying to sort of um, hack the environment <laughs> a, a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I, I think this is, uh, you know, especially just kind of funny with, uh, with Lily because her problem behavior was essentially maintained by adventitious reinforcement. Uh, you know, her, her kennel aggression wasn't causing the other dogs to go away. People were walking by her kennel. She would engage in kennel aggression and then they'd continue to walk away. And Mm. so her behavior was being reinforced accidentally. And so if right. we could get that behavior to rely, the sitting behavior to reliably occur when dogs walked by, then that yes. behavior would essentially just be reinforced in perpetuity. But, you know, using this accidental oh, yeah. reinforcement 
to keep reinforcing the appropriate behavior instead of the inappropriate behavior. And without the functional oh, analysis, really cool. we wouldn't have known to do that. Of course, yeah. No, that's really cool. Best answer to that question. Uh, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, you know, everyone thought, sort of thought about that. Yeah, uh, really neat. Uh, and then, uh, and then sort of from there, you kind of did this adoptability assessment, which, you know, I won't lie. I giggled a bit because I did go into the, the, I, 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 uh, the copy of the article I got a hold on was, was the, was the unedited preprint. Mm-hmm. And so it, it had all of the, you know, had all of the assessments and whatnot at the back. And, and, and I don't know if I read it wrong, but I believe the adoptability assessment was, would you adopt the dog? Yeah, it was it was like, very simple. It was basically, <laughs> a, 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 you know, one to ten uh, Likert scale. Like, would you yeah. uh, adopt the dog in this video? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was, I was all. I, admittedly, I was excited when I read about adoptability assessment that that maybe you folks had come up with some elaborate. Um, um, sort of, you know, multifaceted assessment to determine the adoptability of a dog, and then that would give us all these yeah. different things that we could work on with behavior analysis. If but only. in the end, it was it was no. Would you adopt the dog? It was a bit of a letdown. I won't lie. Um, maybe if it, <laughs> if it was a dissertation project, maybe. But for a master's thesis, for a thesis, one question's enough. We got social well, validity. And, that's all we can ask for. Yeah. Well, and and, and uh, I, I mean, to to uh, I mean, I, I guess to be fair or overly defensive sure. <laughs> uh, no, no one was really doing much social validity work with non-human animals and, and the work no. of non-human animals and so you know we 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 mostly did it. I, I mean i think the, the biggest piece of social validity that we had was that all three of the dogs actually did get adopted afterwards yes after exactly. being at the shelter for you know over six years totally um, and so I think uh, I, I think um, we also put this in in the, the publication, but one of the dogs, the leash puller, actually got adopted in the middle of the study and they got returned wow. for the problem behavior we were working on. Oh, my goodness. And so once we finished it, he got adopted and, and stayed there permanently. Oh uh, so, goodness. you know, that's... in terms of social validity, I think that's that's the real test of social validity. But we, we were happy True. that, you know, we, we were able to at least get some you know qualitative data on what people sure. thought of these particular animals in a, in a pretty scientific way absolutely no and i think it was good and and i, I totally agree with everything you're saying it's it's really about getting the dogs out where it sounds like they probably were but uh, um this study was was this study is this a, a couple of years ago or uh, this, was this was done in tw- i want to say 2016 is okay. when, we, so you, when we did the study, and it was published in 2018. And do you know if those animals remained adopted the yes. entire time? Or Yes, yeah. and they're still adopted. I, I uh, get uh, follow-ups stuff on them sometimes. Oh, that, that's amazing. And, and I think that's a really big piece, too, because, you know, we, we, we kind of joke about the social validity, number one. But to be honest, I mean, there is social validity measures are lacking in general in our field. I mean, mm-hmm. there's, I think there's a lot of studies out there that, that sort of, sort of miss that mark. Um, but another piece that I, you know, I, I think a lot of our, of our human studies miss the mark on, uh, and I've talked about this in a few other episodes is, is this sort of long-term follow-up piece. So, you know, does, you know, say an example of a, of, of a family with a, you know, an autistic child who is engaging in, in problem behavior and, you 
put them through a study and the kid's doing great. Does the kid continue to do great a year later, two years later, five years later, 10 years later, 12 years later? We don't see any of that data usually. Usually it's sort of, you know, uh, a few weeks, a few weeks to maybe six months follow up. Sure. And so, you know, we're starting to see a little more of that, which is great. But, you know, I think I think more would be better. So it's really nice to see, you know, in these early studies of animal behavior, um, uh, um, this long term follow up piece. I mean, I know you're not publishing it, but, uh, you know, we knowing that, uh, you know, uh, you know, those animals remain adopted and who knows, maybe it might even be an idea for. To, to sort of do another another round of this study with a few more dogs and not publish it till four years later and sort of see, you know, dogs still adopted. Because um, I think that, I, I just really like that sort of outcome that of, of the long term. And that was sort of the same story with uh, with uh, Jen, Jen Fritz's cats is that they remained, they remained adopted. And I think that's, that's the big worry is sort of, you know, that they're going to get returned. Does, does, uh, do the, did you sort of pass any kind of skills or training on to the adopters or did they just sort of simply have to know the sit command and that was it? <laughs> we did actually. Um, uh, well, well, one, one, we weren't concerned about some of the problem behaviors because they, they were probably a bit more just shelter specific. Uh, mm-hmm. So for example, like Darius and, and Lily were engaging in problem behavior where they jump hard against, you know, the, the cage of the kennel. Mm-hmm. Uh, for various reasons, and so uh, how that would generalize to you know homes is is a bit tricky. But we did um, for each of the dogs uh, provide to the shelter essentially a, a task analysis for like these are step by step directions on how to keep these mm-hmm. you know these problem behaviors at bay and how to teach uh, these new behaviors. Um, and so uh, one that's one thing that we did. Um, another thing that that we did, which we we don't talk about as more of a more of a kind of clinical side project, is we created a a workbook, um, which is essentially just a, a behavioral workbook for uh, people to take home when they adopt a dog. Uh, mm. That gives them a series of sort of exercises and things to do if their dog starts cool. engaging in problem behavior. Here's some things that you can try. Um, and then uh, more recently, we uh, actually started an animal behavior hotline. Um, which is oh. run by uh, by myself uh, through email, and so people can even come to us through that um, as well. Amazing, amazing! Oh, that's really great. I love that uh, sort of continuing that piece. And I guess the other question is: is um, you know, obviously you want to you know kind of keep doing some of this work, but are you putting anything in place to you know to teach shelters to do some of this work for with more dogs? Absolutely. Um, so, so some of uh, one of uh, my current graduate students who just um, passed her uh, thesis proposal, uh, hmm. we're actually uh, going to utilize a variation of the trial-based functional analysis uh, oh. uh, that uh, was developed by Sigafoos and Saggers, and uh, you know, Dr. Bloom's done a lot of really great work right. with that with humans. Of course. Um, but uh, essentially, we wanted uh, one of the big things about. Um, these uh, trial-based FAs is that from the very get-go, the goal has been train people in the natural environment to conduct these functional analysis sessions. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so we're kind of doing some preliminary work and testing to see can we actually um, generalize this particular procedure to uh, cats mm. uh, in this case. Um, but the long-term goal being 
can we uh, teach shelter staff to do this on their own uh, such that, you know, behavior analysts aren't needed uh, and then mm -hmm. definitely try mm -hmm. and get that out there. Uh, one thing Neat. that we, we have tried to do with uh, our research um, with, you know, ver varying success just because it's, it's definitely difficult to do. Um, but we were able to do it with the first dog functional analysis study is to try and publish in journals that people who work in shelters might actually read. Um, yeah. You know, shelters aren't reading Java. No. <laughs> as much as, you know, I, I'd love to, you know, hand deliver the new issue of Java to them every single, uh, every single quarter, uh, that they're not sure. reading that. Um, no. So we were lucky to publish in a veterinary, in a veterinary behavior journal. Yeah, uh, yeah. And we definitely want to try and keep pushing that. And, you know, it's it's a bit difficult uh, if um, you wonder why we have st statistical analyses in that particular study. Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. because that's what the journal made us do to publish it. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, so that study and, and the uh, dog barking um, study, we published both of those in veterinary journals uh, trying to um, just to try and disseminate as much as possible. Yeah, that's really cool. Let, let, let's talk a little bit about the dog barking study. I, I thought that one was kind of interesting because that's sort of a, a different, a bit of a different approach and, and kind of, uh, you know, uh, takes us into some, uh, some, some, some Pavlovian stuff that, you know, we don't sure. really get to hear much about, but and we, we often hear, we often hear about, you know, Pavlov and his dog and, and, and the chime and the, and the drooling and, and that sort of thing is sort of being, you know, the, you know, the, uh, you know, w w one of those early mm -hmm. examples of, uh, of the development of our science, but then we don't hear much about it anymore. And so it, it's, it's, it's neat that you kind of, you kind of brought some of that back, you know, I think, um, uh, for folks as well that, you know, may, may have not been exposed to like myself, I've not been exposed to much, uh, in terms of, you know, uh, the, the respondent side of our, uh, 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 of our work. So can you tell us a little bit about this study? Sure. Uh, so, um, this study, which, uh, myself and, um, he was actually an undergraduate in my, uh, lab at the time, although he later, uh, became a graduate student, uh, in our program, uh, Kiana Semi, um, published, uh, an article in 2017. It's in a, a journal called Pet Behavior Science. Uh, it's online, open access. Uh, anyone can uh, read it. Uh, and we based this, um, uh, Kian and I had read uh, this really interesting study by Sasha Protopopova, who's you know, huge in, in the fields, uh, and uh, Clive Wynn, who's sort of the, <laughs> the be-all, end-all of, of dog research in our, our field. Uh, and their study, uh, they were looking at um, improving uh, what they called in-kennel presentation of shelter dogs. Uh, so basically uh, trying to increase appropriate behaviors, decrease inappropriate behaviors. Um, and they were testing uh, response-dependent reinforcement, looking at uh, DRO specifically. Um, so they would uh, have someone stand in front of the kennel wait for the dog to not engage in problem behavior for some time and then deliver an edible. Uh, and they compared that to response independent treat delivery, essentially NCR, where <laughs> they would walk up to the kennel and throw treats in, uh, regardless of what the animal was doing. Uh, and what they found was that the non-contingent delivery of the edible items was as effective as the DRO. Um, so they didn't actually need to have the 
animal engaging in the appropriate behavior for the procedure to work. Uh, and they listed a, a number of different reasons as to why it might have uh, changed behavior. Uh, obviously, there's potentially motivating operation um, reasons. Uh, when you're hungry and uh, when you're full and happy, uh, you don't want to engage in as much problem behavior. Um, but uh, one of the, the reasons they, they brought up is it possibly was uh, sort of a respondent thing. Um, uh, so it may be that whatever sort of responding conditions um, this sort of satiety with food produced uh, were incompatible with problem behaviors. And so we essentially wanted to directly test that by explicitly setting up a respondent conditioning uh, procedure. And so what we did in our study is uh, we um, did all of our behavioral measurements uh, through technology. Uh, we had a, a sound meter that uh, detected the level of noise in the animal shelter um, uh, in decibels, uh, and it recorded on a second-by-second -second basis. So we got really, really fine-grained data, which was, uh, which was really nice. Uh, plus, you know, we didn't have to have data collectors in there rating sound levels. Um, and we specifically targeted barking, uh, barking, <laughs> barking, uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that there's been a lot of uh, research just looking at barking in animal shelters uh, and talking about how much of an issue it is. Uh, and um, similar to uh, what we found in terms of our baseline data. A lot of the data suggests that the noise levels in uh, your average animal kennel get upwards of 100 decibels. Uh, long-term exposure to, uh, and by long-term, I mean like 30 minutes of exposure to 85 decibels is enough to start causing hearing loss in humans. Uh, dog hearing is much more sensitive than humans. Uh, so uh, you can imagine that that uh, creates all sorts of other problems. Uh, and there has been data showing that um, things like cortisol levels, which is uh, often considered a stress, uh, an indicator of stress, uh, are higher mm -hmm. in animals when there's loud noises going on than animals in quiet areas. Mm -hmm. uh, but prior to um, our study particularly targeting barking, most of the research on it was, oh, soundproof the you know the kennel area mm, or rearrange your kennels in such a way that the dogs aren't facing one another and it's like well that's great for you know a shelter that is private and has all the money in the world but your municipal mm. shelters don't have that kind of funding to you know build mm -hmm. a new wing mm -hmm. um and so we really wanted to tackle this behaviorally uh so one we we sort of identified that this is a, a pretty big problem uh, and two, the other thing is that uh, in terms of um, just animal behavior, we don't really understand barking very well. Uh, and there's sort of competing mm. theories as to is barking respondent? Um, so it may be a respondent in and of itself. Mm. Uh, and so um, either way, we thought that if we were going to get behavior change um, using a respondent conditioning procedure that produced uh, essentially, these gustatory responses, the salivation, um, and mm. the sort of satisfying of the appetite. Um, the most incompatible behavior with that is barking, something else that the dogs do through their mouth. Mm. Uh, you can't, you know, bark if your drool if your mouth is full of drool. Right. Uh, and, uh, and so that's essentially what we did. And so um, we just set up a kind of 
basic responding conditioning procedure. We would go around um, kennel to kennel, and uh, we used a, a automatic door chime. Um, we're we're hmm. uh, like I talked about with the dog functional analyses. We're really big on making it such that we can set these uh, behavioral interventions up such that the staff don't have to do anything. So they can Perfect. kind of accidentally continue the treatment afterwards. After yeah, yeah, done. yeah. Uh, nice. And so we got these door chimes that would go up. They're the ones that you set up on the, the edge of a door. And when the doors yep. open, it makes a sound. Uh, and so we would walk up to each kennel, sound the door chime, uh, and provide edible items. Uh, and then we just set up the door chimes on all of the doors such that anytime someone entered, which tended to either evoke or elicit, depending on if barking's operant or respondent, uh, the barking behavior. Um, and because this door chime, um, which was previously a neutral stimulus, and we, we went through all the tests to show that it was a neutral stimulus before mm, mm. Uh, doing our pairing. Um, uh, but following the pairing, uh, that anytime someone entered this uh, now conditioned stimulus would hopefully elicit dro uh, you know drooling and salivary responses in the dogs which would be incompatible with barking uh, mm. and we showed although it's a it's a little bit tricky if you look at the the data in the study it's obviously all all over the place um, decibels is sort of a weird measurement because it's a, a mm -hmm. logarithmic based scale uh, and so um, but when we actually broke it down and looked at, uh, made it linear, um, the level of reduction was, uh, I think the sound levels were 46 times higher in baseline than they ended up being in the final treatment phases. Wow. Uh, so overall, uh, it was a pretty good effect. And I think the big thing that we were looking for was, can we get the, no the average noise levels below that 85 decibels where hearing mm -hmm. loss starts to occur? Mm -hmm. um, and we were able to do that, which, uh, you know, we were really kind of excited about. Uh, and I think, you know, the, the big, there are obviously quite a few uh, important implications of this particular work. Um, one of the biggest ones for us uh, was, honestly, it just made it easier to spend more time in the kennel area. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. when, when noise is that loud, people who go into the animal shelter don't want to spend a lot of time there. Uh, because it's aversive and you just want yes. to escape. Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. And so yeah. it, you're not, you know, that it's not a big deal for people who are going to the shelters thinking, I want this dog. But for those mm -hmm. who are like, I'm looking for a dog, but I don't quite know what I want. The more sure. time we can get them to spend in that area, the more likely they're going to take the time to figure out which dog they want and adopt those dogs. And so not Absolutely. only did we think it would help the dogs out, but it might actually increase adoption because uh, people are going to spend more time looking at the animals. Now, obviously, we didn't take any data on that or look at mm -hmm. differences in rates of adoption before and after. Sure. We just didn't have those data. Um, but, you know. We hope that's what happens. I mean, even even just data on on you know sort of average amount of time the consumer spends in the mm -hmm. in the in the in the kennel would would probably have been quite an interesting number. Um, I, yeah, I wonder it would have if we thought about that during baseline. That's the problem. Sure. Yeah. No. Exactly. So, uh, and the other piece I think though that. About it. <laughs> The the other piece that I think is really valuable is is sort of the the you know is is the sort of the work uh, what's the, what will be the term we 
use for that. Uh, I guess the, the 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 works work safety. I guess work site safety. Sure. I mean, I I, ne- I never see uh, you know uh, when I go to my local SBCA or whatever, I never see staff wearing earplugs or or uh, or, or <laughs> noise canceling headphones to to kind of protect themselves and um, you know and 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 sort of you know and and I don't know maybe it's because generally those folks don't have staff that stay forever and ever and ever mm-hmm. but um and so they don't really pick up on the hearing loss till it's too late but i, I never i never i would never even have considered that let alone the the, the the potential hearing damage to you know sort of the other dogs in the kennel so sure. that's amazing um yeah re- re- really 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 interesting so uh um i guess i guess the only thing that now that we need to know is is sort of you know and it's like you said we don't know what the barking is and so um you know and and again i'm I'm not saying you're doing this i think everything you're doing is makes a lot of sense it's going to be better for the dogs it's going to be better it's going to help them get adopted it's going to be better for the workers there but it makes you wonder about sort of all of this uh kind of talk right now at least makes me wonder but all this kind of talk now around um uh, reducing stereotypy that for no other purpose than it looks weird. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and, you know, there's been a real kind of, and, and I know that, that doesn't happen as much these days, but there's been a lot of movement to, towards sort of, you know, understanding more sort of, you know, that autistic perspective. Yeah, the, the neurodiversity so, movement. Yeah, exactly. And that, you know, and that stimming, you know, meets sort of, you know, uh, you know, certain needs for folks. Uh, it makes you wonder if, if bar- it makes it makes you wonder if the, what what the barking is really all about and what it means and and does reduce. Is, 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 and I know this is sort of a philosophical, speculative kind of question, but it makes you kind of wonder about. You know, hope, hopefully that's that's a good thing in the long run. It reducing barking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The, no, de- definitely, and and you know, I think it's you know, it's it's not so much about reducing barking per se it's it's more mm. about reducing barking in that particular environment where there's mm. so much other stressful stimuli going on um yes you know uh, there's uh, obviously a lot of controversy with treating barking uh, in in uh, particularly in the united states a lot of people um it, it's kind of gone out of out of fashion and a lot of our major retailers like petco have gotten rid of these uh, particular items, but it used to be very common that people would just buy shock collars for their dogs. And anytime their collar barked, their dog barked, they'd get a a brief shock and it would suppress, you know, it would suppress barking because (laughs) it's a a very powerful punisher. But, um, you know, uh, obviously that's, that's really gone out of of favor. And uh, there, there have been uh, even some behavior analytic work um, looking at, other devices like uh, citronella um, collars and and things like that that are less harmful to reduce barking, uh, but yeah, it's it's kind of an interesting uh, interesting thing to think about. Um, and uh, you know, I, I hadn't necessarily thought about that that comparison with uh, the the neurodiversity um, movement and kind of the the reduction of the um, the stigmatism of of stereotypy being. A, a much better goal than the reduction of stereotypy in and of itself. Um, totally. It's, it's, you know, a, a harmless behavior to others and um, uh, with, you know, yeah. some, with some exceptions of obviously those that uh, interfere severely with learning, um, you know, are not harmful to individuals uh, with autism. Either. Right. 
Right, right. No, and 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 and, 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 and maybe it's a stretch. I mean, I think I think it's more just because we don't know what yeah. the barking means. You know, are are we reducing something that that's necessary? But you made you made you made two really good points that I I never thought about. Uh, one was the uh, the uh, the context. So normally you're not going to have a bunch of dogs. You know, a, a, a sort of a normal sort of you know uh, living environment is not a bunch of dogs in one building separated by by concrete walls. You know, and 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 sort of all those other pieces kind of in place. So that makes a lot of sense, reducing barking in that context. But I never even thought about sort of. <clears throat> it's a great point that yeah, there are a lot of sort of really aversive ways that you know uh, owners kind of uh, try to reduce barking in dogs. So again, if we can, you know. Uh, teach some of those dogs you know uh, other ways of, of 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 dealing with that so again this could be a similar situation of you know even even uh, sending that dog home with uh you know with uh you know with with their own door chime you know and say sure. hey you know <laughs> ring the chime try ringing the chime before you before you, or just before you just before give you... them food you just use the yeah. unconditioned the, fair the enough yeah exactly unconditioned stimulus. yeah yeah totally really cool um from there, let's just uh, you know, uh, let's just let's talk a little bit about uh, the cat study now, because sure. uh, that was sort of what was the impetus for me doing this this in the first place. But I do wonder, uh, as we start asking questions, how different, you know, I, I didn't have a chance to read your cat study, so I'm I'm curious, mm-hmm. sort of, yeah, uh, are, are there are there differences between yours and, and Doctor Fritz's study? Uh, I guess it would be question number would be question number two because question number one would be sort of um, how how are you how are you able to move from dogs to cats because the, the thing about I think about with cats with dogs you know you can you can um, you can you can teach them it's a lot easier to I think it it seems like it's probably a lot easier to teach dogs other behaviors and maybe this is just you know just from my experience of having two cats that run the house and a dog that does what she's told um <laughs> and uh um and, or a dog that does what the cats tell them to tell her tell her to do too um 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 so i guess question number the question is sort of wh- not really why move into cats because i think the reasoning is all the same it's you know mm-hmm. aggressive cats with aggressive problems are not going to get adopted and are probably more likely to be put down so i think i think that's sort of kind of kind of the obvious answer but so what what's what's different about about a cat study i mean i i think uh in in terms of you know conducting functional analyses and and doing all these other things with with cats uh, i i think you're right you know there there are definitely some some biological differences between uh, <laughs> between dogs and cats. Um, I was it's funny. I was actually at a, a, a canine conference in uh, Arizona a few years back, um, and there was this really interesting. Um, it was a geneticist who basically said that dogs have this particular gene that's found in humans with Williams syndrome. Um, and Williams syndrome in humans produces uh, essentially behavioral patterns where people are hyper-friendly, hyper-social um, with other people, don't have a lot of social boundaries with other people. And it's like, yeah, that's a dog. <laughs> Sounds exactly like a dog. Um, and, you know, I, I think cats prob- uh, probably, you know, just, just from everyone's you know, casual observations, cats don't care about human attention as much as dogs do. Uh, right. Um, 
And so it's it's really just about uh, identifying what those reinforcers are for cat behavior. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, functional analysis is a great way to do that, uh, not, not to just, uh, you know, continue to plug functional analysis. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, we felt like they had... Um, you know, a lot of senior cats who weren't getting adopted and they yes. basically lost hope that they'd ever get adopted. And yes. we were like, well, you know, we, we have this technology. We've shown that it works with dogs. Other people have shown that it works across, you know, apes and vultures and mm-hmm. uh, there's mm-hmm. all sorts of different species. So it does seem like there's some good cross-species generalization for this particular methodology. Mm-hmm. And so you know, we're working at an animal shelter and they have this other population that really no one in behavior analysis is working with. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, I, I've, I've known uh, Jen Fritz since I was an undergrad uh, and she was a graduate student and I had no idea she was working on this either. Um, uh, and huh. it's kind of serendipitous that we were, uh, you know, two people that have known each other for a long time. We're both simultaneously working on uh the exact same uh, almost the exact same project uh and i didn't find out until um the abai conference was coming up and she uh, i don't remember if she reached out to me or i uh, i think she reached out to me or her student reached out to me um and was like hey we're doing this pro- uh knew that we did work with shelter animals and she was like hey we're you know doing this study with cat functional analysis and i'm like hmm. like crap yeah we are too uh and so we did a symposium <laughs> together and you know I, I think um that that worked out really well and we we both you know published our papers within like less than a month of each other yeah, uh, across yeah. different journals which you know again kind of spreads the, the the generality of this stuff getting yeah. out there although they were both in behavior analytic journals um but uh but yeah so i i think you know it's it's just a really understudied population um and and you know I, i'm a i'm a cat person we have a whole bunch of cats in our house so nice <laughs> um we love cats uh That's so awesome. yeah um and so we were uh i had a a graduate student who was also really passionate about uh, cats, uh, Cruz Salmaron, who's the the uh, first author on that paper. And um, so we decided, uh, and, you know, working with the shelter, getting them to nominate animals who just hadn't been adopted for a long time and they had trouble interacting with because they were aggressive. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, they identified three and we worked with them uh conducting these functional analyses, came up with good function-based treatments. Uh, and um, the, again, all three of the animals were adopted after we finished mm. our, our treatment. Um, we did do a three-month follow-up with two of them. Um, one of them had already been adopted, but after uh, and problem behavior was still at zero levels for both of the two mm. that were still there, um, but they both got adopted shortly after our follow-up. The third secret word is lab really neat so with with uh, Jen's study was all about was 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 really focused on petting so mm-hmm. you know it, cats were getting pet and and getting attacked and and people were getting you know attacked by the cats which you know it, it's sort of a you know it's that's that's really age old lore now you know it you you, you can touch a cat <laughs> for 
two seconds, you can't touch it for three, and you can't touch it for one. Sure. You know, you touch it for one second, he grabs you to make you touch it for longer. You touch him for four seconds, he swats you and says, I- I've had enough, or mm. gives you a dirty look, and you know it's over. Um, and so we, we know that we know that petting cats, you know, you know, uh, it, it, it has a bunch of rules that you got to follow. And, and she did a really good job of, uh, of, of being able to extend things to, I think, I think 10 second was 10 seconds was sort of the, the, uh, of petting was, was the goal, which, you know, I then, I then soon after the, after we, we recorded the, 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 the episode, I went over to my cat and tried to pet it for 10 seconds. And, uh, <laughs> one, one of them, one of them was all for it. The other one was like, no, still three seconds. That's all you're getting. Um, and so I was like, oh, 10 seconds, that's a pretty good number. Um, what, what, uh, were you guys working on petting or like, what were, what were you, what kind of behaviors did you have? And, and so, so being uh, the treatments you know so uh for our our uh, so uh, it's really uh surprising how close um you know our, our studies kind of matched up with one mm, another mm. We, we both uh, you know uh, jen and i both have long histories of working with functional analysis and so um and we're both creative people so we ended up um for our escape conditions and our functional analysis uh essentially looking at escape from physical attention. Uh, and uh, so we were doing the same thing and we had this sort of, gra- we had uh, this graduated procedure where we would move to initially like reaching out and touching the animal on the head, then moving to doing a full stroke of their body, then touching mm. their paws, and then finally attempting to mm. pick them up. Uh, mm. Now, um, unlike the sort of lore that you mentioned, uh, we never got past the first step uh, with these <laughs> cats. Um, yeah. In our escape condition, just approaching the cat with our hands evoked aggra- mm. evoked scratching. Um, and we had mm. protective equipment on during the FA, thank goodness, because uh, these cats were aggressing hard. Like, it, it, <laughs> you could feel the impact through the gloves. That we yeah, had. yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so they, they didn't tolerate any physical action whatsoever interaction whatsoever uh which you know if you want to get a cat adopted it's it's not a good thing for them to do mm-hmm. uh, and so for all three of the cats we we identified escape from uh physical attention as the function of their problem behavior mm-hmm. and so uh our our procedures were uh, a little bit different than uh than jen's but um uh, but uh, similar in scope in that, you know, normally if you do a, a functional analysis with humans, you typically go on to do like an FCT or, you know, DRA, something along mm-hmm. those lines, mm-hmm. depending on the function. Um, but for cats, uh, particularly cats who do not tolerate uh, inter- social interaction whatsoever, um, thinking about the end goals, uh, the end goal here is we want them to one be adopted, two maybe mm. allow vets to look at them um, so that they mm. can get good healthcare. And so teaching them an alternative escape response wasn't going to be helpful in reaching those sort of end goals. Um, mm-hmm. We wanted them to mm-hmm. be able to tolerate the uh, you know currently aversive stimulus. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so what mm-hmm. we did in our study was um, we developed a fading procedure uh, and also did a pairing procedure. Um, so we did uh, some paired stimulus preference assessments with the cats. <laughs> um, uh, for two of the cats, we were able to identify uh, flavors of food that they really liked. 
Okay. Um, and uh, for the third one, um, she would not interact with any of the food we provided. Um, just having a person nearby her, she would freeze up. Um, yeah. Unless you approached her and then she'd uh, scratch you. But <laughs> uh, And so we, we ended up uh, just using vocal attention with her. Um, she seemed to just like the real calm, like talking to her huh. like a baby. Um, right on. And uh, just, just anecdotally. And so we ended up using that. And so what we did was we first um, faded in the sort of level of aversiveness of the procedure. So we'd start by just doing the petting on the head for a few sessions paired with the food or with the the vocal attention. Um, And then we'd move on to some of uh, just sort of through that graduated series of physical interactions with the cats until they were not engaging in any aggression uh, while we were interacting with them. And then we gradually faded out uh, some of the other things. Um, So we faded out the food uh, um, such that it was just the physical interaction and then eventually faded out the protective equipment such that it was essentially as much of a normal interaction. The only cat that we didn't fade out the um, sort of reinforcing stimulus we were pairing it with was the cat with the vocal attention because that's (laughs) a pretty normal way to interact with a cat as you say things to them while you're petting them. Yeah, um, yeah. And so, yeah, so that's essentially uh, what we did. We basically did um, tolerance training, you know, s- similar to what, uh, you know, a, a behavior analyst working in the field of developmental disabilities might do uh, for, you know, an individual who has to sit through a haircut or through dental mm. procedures or things like mm. that. A um, lot of pairing of positive reinforcement and gradual exposure to more and more aversive aspects of that particular setting. Gotcha. Gotcha. Oh, that's really cool. Uh, I just love, uh, uh, I love that you folks are doing this kind of work. Um, uh, similar question, I guess, to, to the dog study, uh, dog studies, uh, uh, are, are there, are there, will there be sort of similar plans to maybe help shelters do this kind of work with the cats as well? Absolutely. And that, and that's kind of what we're, do, what we're, uh, doing with my, um, my, current graduate students mm. uh, thesis is we're doing those trial-based FAs with cats um, and, right. and trying to, okay. to move on with there. And then we'll, we'll probably, if I, if I get a graduate student that's interested, uh, test them in dogs as well. Um, but we're, we're definitely now, now that it's getting more and more established that these procedures work with dogs and cats, um, kind of getting that uh, just strict, you know, um, sort of systematic replication and uh, showing the generality of the procedures now, I think is is the time where um, we'll be moving, and I think the field in general will be moving more towards developing procedures that are easier to do and work more uh, in those environments. Um, uh, if you if you want a good uh, study to to sort of read on on some things like that, uh, one of my colleagues, Veronica Howard, who's up in Alaska, uh, I think she's yes. at the University of Alaska Anchorage right now. Um, uh, published uh, a study, I think it was her, it was either her master's thesis or her dissertation where she was training uh, animal shelter volunteers to do different mm. behavioral things with animals. And so oh, there is some, really cool. some cool research um, from uh, sort of OBM aspects on that. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that one's published in Java. That's awesome. Well, this has all been really interesting. I, I, I really thought uh, when I, 
asked uh, you and Jen to come on the podcast and I talked to each for about 10 minutes and, uh, and, and, and that would be it. We'd have, a, 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 we, 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 we might have enough uh, time to get ourselves across the 50 minute mark in, in order to, you know, get a CEU in there for folks. Uh, but you know, both of you have really, you know, uh, expanded my knowledge of this area and, uh, and as well as sort of just all the other kind of pieces that are, that are, that are going on just in, in, in the States, uh, you know, around, you know, no kill and those sorts of pieces. Um, I, I love they have an animal behavior hotline. I don't, don't know that many people would know that. Um, uh, definitely, uh, going to, uh, plug you on our, on our, on our vegan Facebook page. Cause I bet you could, we, I bet you'll find a, f- a few grad students on there that are, that will be keen to come down your way. Cause there's a lot of folks that are probably looking for ways to sort of, uh, apply some of their convictions in this field. You know, we haven't really had a lot of conversations about actual behavior analytic studies on that page. It's just been more about what you have for dinner. So, um, yeah, I think that'll be a, a really neat, uh, some really neat spark, some really neat conversations. So, yeah, you know, uh, really, really cool work, really, really happy that folks are like yourselves and, and, and Jen are doing this work to kind of, you know, uh, help, help reduce the amount of animals that are getting killed and help getting some of these animals into happy homes and live, living long, happy, happy lives with families. Um, so really, really beautiful stuff. Thank, thanks so much for doing this work and for, for coming on the show. Of course.